welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 78, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Monday through Thursday on NBC at 11.30 p.m. nationwide. Mm. What used to be on NBC at 11.30 p.m. nationwide, folks? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this one, this, this book we're about to read was picked by Aaron Anderson, also known as Bad Touch Dr. Light. Uh, he's at Chef High on Twitter. He is or was a chef, and that's why uh, that name is there. Uh, I don't know what he has to promote, Chris. I'll be honest with you. He's just a guy that mm. likes comics. He does. True. He does. Uh, which is fine. That that's <laughs> all you need to uh, recommend a comic for the show. But uh, he does do a show every Thursday at seven PM on Mixer.com/slash Weird Science DC, where he plays music for three hours. So mm-hmm. go check that out if you're interested. Yes, and this issue is the first comic that Aaron purchased off the rack at. Uh... Pamita, which is once a rural chain of department stores. So this is a, a very special one to his collecting career. That's right. This, there's something about this comic, and I think we're going to discuss what it was about this comic that probably drew young yes. Aaron Anderson's eye to it. But the comic we're talking about, folks, is Avengers Spotlight number 23. Had an October 1989 cover date written by Howard Mackey, John Byrne, Kieran Dwyer. Penciled by Al Milgram, Kieran Dwyer, and inked by Don Heck. Carl Kiesel, colored by Mark Seary, Kieran Dwyer, lettered by Jack Morelli, Phil Felix, edited by Mark Gruenwald, covered by Kieran Dwyer, cover prices $1 USD, $1.25 Canada, and 60 pence in the UK. Now, the reason we heard so many creators, and pretty much two, two or more creators for every, uh, you know, uh, position, hmm. are there are two stories in this one, as we're about to learn, uh, bios for the first creative team first. Yes, first we're going to talk about the writer Howard Mackey. He was born January 22nd, 1958 in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. He was raised mostly by his mother. His father had passed away when he was young. He was only seven. Uh, Mackey started his career in comics in 1984 as an assistant editor for Mark Gruenwald. Early in Mackey's career, a running gag in Gruenwald's columns was that Mackey was a mysterious figure whose face no one at Marvel had ever seen. Howard says, I was working for an exporting company and having less fun than I thought I should be having. A good friend, tired of hearing me whining about how much my current job sucked, was aware that there was an editorial position opening up at Marvel. The job was to be Mark Ruinwald's assistant editor. Salary was pathetic. The friend was Mike Carlin. I think he went off to do something involving a guy with a red cape. Mm, he was, yeah, he, he was Superman's, uh, yeah. Uh, now, I worked as Mark Gruenwald's assistant, editing the core Avengers titles for a couple of years, and then received a promotion to managing editor. Nothing happened in that position, but I did start trying my hand at writing. It was strongly suggested at the time that assistants do something on the other side of the desk so that you can learn what it felt like to be a freelancer. Interesting, which uh, is not the edict that you would get... These days are really no. right right <laughs> after before that. Happened, that. Yeah. Or before <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. Uh, he was promoted in early 1987 to managing editor of, spe- of special projects. Uh, Mackey then oversaw Marvel's The New Universe line. Uh, we discussed the New Universe and its launch title, Star Brand Number One, in episode number 71 in our archives, though it's sort of more of a Jim Shooter bio that episode, but you will learn all about New, uh, new Universe. Uh, his writing debut was on Iron Man number 211, October 1986, penciled by Alex Saviak, and he thought this would be his last writing assignment. 
But we're most interested in what likely his second credit as writer was for Chuck Norris Karate Commandos number four, mm-hmm. July nineteen eighty seven cover. You ever read that one, Chris? I have not. I think uh, that one is a future episode of Cosmic Treadmill. Someone's got to recommend that one, yeah. <laughs> Whatever his first book was, he was still pretty green when he wrote the story we're about to read from Avengers Spotlight number 23. Certainly. Let's hop on to the other side of the test to the desk to someone who was not green. Uh, Alan Milgram. Alan L. Milgram, born March 6, 1950 in Detroit, Michigan. He would graduate from the University of Michigan in 1972. He also started his comics career that year as an assistant for Inker Murphy Anderson. Al says, I came out to New York from Michigan with samples. My childhood buddy, Jim Starlin, had come out a year earlier. He was in the Navy, and after his discharge, this was the early 70s, he came out to New York and started getting some work, and I was in college and came out here after I'd graduated. Jim was doing stuff for Marvel and DC and doing breakdowns or layouts for John Romita on some of the Spider-Man material, and when I came out, I wasn't quite ready to get work on my own, but I was good enough to start doing some background work for Murphy. During that period, Milgram contributed to Charlton Comics' Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves, Star Reach, and comics published by Warren Publishing and Atlas Seaboard. He says, Rich Buckley was already out here and was starting to get some work, and a friend of his here named Jim Janes had penciled a job for Charlton, and he wasn't a good inker, or didn't feel he was a good inker, so they needed one for the job, and Rich told them about me, and the next thing I know, I was inking a short five- or six-page Charlton job for maybe ten bucks a page. I remember my mother was horrified at how little money it was, and frankly I did not do the best job in the world, I wasn't really ready yet either, but Charlton, God bless him, they couldn't afford to be very choosy about the work even though they had some very good people working for them. So that was my first experience. Milgram also worked as a crunk, a crust, a crunk, a crusty bunker. For yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Work with little John. Is that what it was? Yes. <laughs> this is in 1977, and Crusty Bunkers was a collective pseudonym of the group of comic book inkers clustered around Neil Adams and Dick Giordano's New York City-based art and design agency, Continuity Studios. This was from 1972 through 77. At one point, Milgram lived in the same Queens apartment building as artists Walter Simonson, Howard Chaikin, and Bernie Wrightson. Milgram came to prominence as a penciler on Captain Marvel from 1975 to 1977. He penciled the Guardians of the Galaxy feature in Marvel Presents, which was written by Steve Gerber and Roger Stern. Yeah, we don't go too deeply, but I think we talk a little more about the Krusty Bunkers in the uh, Robocop vs. Terminator episode with Walter Simonson. Uh, it seems like a cool time that they were all they all kind of hung out and learned from each other. Anyway, wrap up on Milgram. Uh, he worked as an editor at DC Comics from 1977 to 78. And while at DC, he co-created Ronnie Raymond, the original Firestorm with writer Jerry Conway. Milgram was an editor in Marvel Comics beginning in 1979, editing Marvel Fanfare for its full 10-year run. That was one, uh, 60 issues, March 82 to January 1992. As editor of The Incredible Hulk, he uh, designed the costumes of the UFOs. He drew The Avengers from 1983 to 85, The West Coast Avengers from 85 to 88, Kitty Pryde and Wolverine from 84 to 85, Secret Wars 2 from 85 to 86, and the Mephisto Limited series in 1987. Al Milgram wrote and drew The Spectacular Spider-Man 90 to 100, that was 1984 to 85, and The Incredible Hulk, that was 86 to 87. Milgram married Judy, Judy Lewin in early 1979. They have a daughter who was born in 1982. 
Now, before we get to the story, let's find out just exactly what was Avengers Spotlight. Now, the title began as Solo Avengers, spinning out from the Avengers. And it was published for 20 issues from December 1987 through July 1989 until it was renamed Avengers Spotlight with issue number 21. That was the August of 89 issue. Uh, The format of the title was normally to have two stories, the first featuring the character Hawkeye and the other a backup strip showcasing a current or former member of the team. With issue 35, the format changed to exclusively focus on one full-length story. Right, so the first story is going to be about Clint Barton, Hawkeye. So uh, mm-hmm. let's tell you about him and why, where he is right before we uh, jump into this story. Full name, Clinton Francis Clint Barton. First appeared in Tales of Suspense number 57, that was September 1964 issue, by Stan Lee and Don Heck as an arrow-shooting reluctant villain and would reprise that role in Tales of Suspense number 60 and 64. That was December 64 and April 65 cover dates, respectively. Those are also by Stanley and Heck. Uh, then he joined the Avengers in the Avengers number 16, May 1965 cover by Stanley and Jack Kirby as an arrow-shooting hero. Clinton was born in Waverly, Iowa, and lost both his parents in a car accident when he was young. After six years in an orphanage, Clinton and his brother Barney ran away to join the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders. Clint Sutton caught the eye of the swordsman who, along with the help of Trickshot, the swordsman trained Clint to become a master archer. The swordsman was a fairly uh, recurring supervillain in early Avengers comics, first showing up in the Avengers Volume 1, number 19, August 65, covered by Lee and Heck, and Trickshot, well, we'll be meeting him very shortly. Mm-hmm. Now, Clint adapted his archery skills to become a star carnival attraction, a master archer called Hawkeye, otherwise known as the world's greatest marksman. Inspired by Iron Man, he decided to become a hero, but screwed it up and was accused of being a criminal. After he saves Jarvis and his mother from a mugger, Hawkeye is invited to join the Avengers. Uh, pretty specific membership requirement. Yeah, really. you got to save Jarvis. <laughs> like, sheesh. That's how you become part of Cap's kooky quartet. Uh, (laughs) Now, after Clint married former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Barbara Bobby Morse, uh, also known as the hero Mockingbird, he starts up the West Coast Avengers in Los Angeles, California. Hawkeye starts up the satellite Avengers team under the suggestion of teammate Vision, who wanted to expand the Avengers' influence. Clint initially recruited Mockingbird, Wonder Man, Tigra, and Iron Man. This is Jim Rhodes wearing the Iron Man costume at that point. Uh, When Mockingbird is kidnapped by the Phantom Rider and allows him to die as a consequence, uh, her marriage to Clint becomes frayed and they ultimately separate. So just before the story we're about to read, Hawkeye has been made to run a gauntlet of every villain he's faced since the beginning of this series, and he's not doing too well at the moment. This story is called Tooth and Nail and Hammer and Bullet and Chainsaw by Mm -hmm. Howard Mackey and Al Milgram. (laughs) Uh, the cover of this comic features Vision, so we'll talk about that later for the second story, which is Vision's story. Hawkeye is lying on the ground, left arm trickling blood, while Bobcat and Mad Dog fight over him, like actually standing over him, yeah. arguing about who will beat him up some more, you know? Uh, literally fighting like cats and dogs. Uh, Bobcat first appeared in Solo Avengers number 11, October 1988, cover by Tom DeFalco and Mark Bright. He wears gloves with razor-sharp claws, and he's a good fighter and has a 
big thing for cats, we bet, right? Something like that. Probably. Yeah. I'd say so. <laughs> On the other side of Hawkeye stands Robert Buzz Baxter, a.k.a. Mad Dog. He has three origins. We're concerned primarily with the one stemming from Amazing Adventures number 13, back July 1972, by Steve Englehart and Tom Sutton. Now, he was married to his high school sweetheart, Patsy Walker. But when they split up, he became villainous. Buzz allowed the Roxxon Corporation to experiment on him and debuted as Mad Dog in Defenders Volume 1, number 125. This was November 1983 by J.M. DeMatteis and Don Perlin. He's got enhanced senses, and he's also a good fighter. And uh, his bite releases a neurotoxin. Yeah, just like old dogs. So uh, yeah, I guess we're not we're not talking about the one that was based on that Bob Newhart uh, sitcom then. No, no, that's... <laughs> That was a different dangerous. Also, Mad Dog basically looked kind of like Batman. Can we just Pretty say much. that? Like a brown Batman? Yeah. That's the cowl part, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so Bobcat says, Hawkeye is mine! Mad Dog goes, Grr, mine! Hawkeye goes, Bobcat, Mad Dog, no need to fight over me like cats and dog. Oh, never mind. Look, Dog Breath, you had your chance and you blew it! Get out of my way and let me take what's mine! Uh, I had him exactly where I wanted him until you interfered. Uh, now I'll have to rip out your stinking cat guts. Quit drooling on me, flea bag, or my claws will make history of your eyes. I need the practice removing body parts. Uh, is he training to be a surgeon or something? Yeah, or maybe he's joined like a cult. I have no idea. <laughs> Good be. practice so badly. Uh, while Mad Dog and Bobcat tussle, Hawkeye thinks it. Might be a good time to get going while the getting's good. Yeah, Hawkeye thinks to himself, just what I need. Two refugees from an animal shelter killing each other to decide who kills me. Wasn't bad enough that the brothers Grimm attacked me and Mock had her marriage counselor. That was last issue, explains a yes. helpful caption. And he continues, but then Mad Dog comes out of nowhere and bites me on the forearm. I'm going to have to visit a doctor. I think he injected some venom into me, but I don't feel too bad. So Hawkeye tries to slink off and falls flat on his face. He picks himself up and limps away while Mad Dog and Bobcat keep brawling. Moron! He's getting away! Hawkeye thinks, they've seen me. Can't outrun them in this condition. Mad Dog chips in, I'll finish you after I tear out Hawkeye's throat. Now Bobcat and Mad Dog take off after Hawkeye, but he fires a tear gas arrow that stops them in their tracks. Sorry about the tear gas arrow, guys. Please don't turn me into the ASPCA. Very good. Hawkeye makes off down an alley. And he thinks, while they're crying up a storm, I'll duck down this alley. <laughs> Hawkeye <laughs> pulls out a gadget to summon his sky cycle, a flying mode of transportation, but the sky cycle doesn't respond. And Hawkeye thinks, can't wait all night. Marmaduke and Garfield are liable to catch up with me. I've got to get out of this part of the city, but without my sky cycle, it's not going to be easy. You got to quit living for your car, man. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. you know, they they get you both ways, the insurance and the maintenance and the gas. You'll be doing it all. Anyway. Uh, You're working cut, for it. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> uh, cutting to a guy with white hair and a Van Dyke beard talking on the phone and looking out through a shattered window. Now, this is Dr. Myron Steinmetz, but we don't formally meet him in this issue. Nor will we learn who is on the other side of the phone call here, uh, but it's it's Crossfire. Yeah, you know, we don't really hold back on the uh, secrets no. in these books. <laughs> uh, Dr. Steinman says, everything is going as planned, sir. 
Hawkeye has been separated from Mockingbird, and the signal to his sky cycle has been jammed, and he's been drugged by Mad Dog. He's alone and on foot, and we'll be able to keep him under surveillance. He should make easy pickings. To which Crossfire says, Excellent! <laughs> back on the streets, Hawkeye is skulking around trying to get back to Los Angeles. He's in New York now. Uh, it's a Marvel comic. What other city could he possibly be in? <laughs> Gotham said, no, no, not no, just New York. No, no. Uh, now, is still thinking to himself, it just doesn't make sense. I know I'm not a po- the popular guy, but sheesh, why all of a sudden does every Tom, Dick, and Mad Dog want a piece of me? Well, at least I lost the Kennel Club. Looks like the coast is clear. Uh, the coast isn't clear. Because no. just then, a red and blue costume guy in a red motorcycle fires at Hawkeye's feet using guns mounted on either side of his front wheel. Make that was clear? Who the... A uh, bullet biker says, Come on, Bonos, you remember me, the bullet biker. I wish I didn't, but I do. Former stunt biker Dylan Zarrow, a.k.a. Bullet Biker, first appeared in Solo Avengers number 13, December 1988 cover by Tom DeFalco, Ralph Macchio, and Ron Lim. He's got a bike, a motorcycle, and it shoots bullets. Hey, there you go. I get it. I get it. <laughs> His last note appearance will be two issues from now. So, uh, <laughs> don't, uh, this is why you haven't seen him come back recently. I'm He's, starting the Bullet Biker podcast. You might have to. Uh, the <laughs> shortest, like, three three episode podcast. We, we'll cover every appearance of Bullet Biker. Yes, the life and times of Bullet Biker. <laughs> uh, Hawkeye dodges the Bullet Biker's bike bullets and hides under an old Plymouth sedan. And he thinks to himself, hiding under an old Plymouth with poison coursing through my veins while a reject from a bad Hell's Angel movie takes pot shots at me. It's not my idea of a fun night. Yeah, he'd rather be hiding under a Mustang, I bet. Well, of course, it's got cachet to it. Very cool, yeah. While Bullet Biker taunts him, Hawkeye tries to draw his bow, but the space is too cramped for him to peel off an arrow, so Hawkeye decides it's time to make his move. Yes, he thinks, that's it. I've had it. I don't care how much I'm hurting. I'm not hiding from Bullet Biker, Mad Dog, Bobcat, or any other two-bit villain. Tonight or any night. But as he tries to get out, Hawkeye's bow gets hung up on the Plymouth's muffler. Uh-oh. He thinks, <laughs> even with my head fuzzy, I bet I can still get off one good shot. Hey, my bow's stuck on the muffler. He's on top of me already. No time to... Then Bullet Biker tosses a grenade at the Plymouth. And he says, Yikes. You're trashed, man. Hawkeye goes, Grenade! Wow. Uh, Hawkeye darts from under the Plymouth and dives into a bunch of garbage cans. And at this time, most garbage cans were aluminum. So this is not like falling into your typical, you know, plastic collapsible jobs. Yes. This, this is a painful endeavor here. And then the, uh, the car blows up with a patam, sending Hawkeye head over heels right into the garbage cans. And garbage within the cans, can't forget that. That's right, it's all very messy endeavor. It's very gross. <laughs> Lying in a pile of garbage, Hawkeye starts to panic. He thinks to himself, just made it, head spinning more than before. I really I really don't need this garbage. Gotta focus, get a fix on where the biker is. Face it, tough guy, you're unarmed and beaten. But don't feel too bad, you never, you really never stood a chance. After all, I'm the best money can buy, and once I get a piece of you, I'll have plenty of moolah. Bullet Biker bears down on Hawkeye, who flings a garbage can lid at him. Hawkeye says, I've taken enough of your garbage, Boast Rider, so put a lid on it. The lid connects with Bullet Biker with a splang and knocks him off his bike. 
Hawkeye takes down, takes off down the street while he still can. And Hawkeye thinks to himself, Captain America would be proud of that little move. Yeah, probably. Dr. Steinmetz <laughs> is now sitting in a nearby car observing the action. He's also talking to Crossfire, but we still don't know who that is right this time. Steinmetz reporting. Hawkeye has dispatched the bullet biker, though he seems the worst for it. The next group should finish him off. Out. Hawkeye leans against a telephone pole to compose himself and thinks, Can't shake the cobwebs out of my skull. Seems like every criminal I've ever had a run-in with is after me tonight. Why? What do they all want? From off-panel, someone yells to Hawkeye. It's Knick-Knack, incidentally. That's right, Knick-Knack says, <laughs> Yo, Archer, the fun is just starting! Knick-Knack? Then Hawkeye thinks, Oh no, forgot all, forgot all about my New York-based enemies. That's all right, lots of people have forgotten about Knick-Knack, I guarantee I already you. forgot about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Knick-Knack was, or is, Nick Grossman, an expert juggler and stunt performer who first appeared as Knick-Knack in Captain America number 317, his May 1986 cover date by Mark Gruenwald and Paul Neary. He's an original member of the band of juggling villains known as the Death Throws. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> and, we're, and we're about to meet more of them, too. <laughs> Hawkeye goes, I assume you want to kill me too? Uh, Nick Knack is juggling various knives and he throws one at Hawkeye, which lodges right next to his head on the telephone pole. He says, Nah, we don't want to kill you. We just want to play. We? That means... And then a sharp ring flies by Hawkeye, slicing his right shoulder. Yow! A razor-sharp ring cut my shoulder! And the ringleader says, Aha! Courtesy of the ringleader! Head of the death throws! See, we told you. Charles Lass is another expert juggler turned villain who first appeared in the same issue as Captain America's knickknack. Hmm. Hawkeye thinks to himself, Uh-oh. If I remember correctly, there are five of these juggling jokers. Oh, there sure are. <laughs> Hawkeye. <laughs> Hawkeye gets beamed in the leg by a bowling pin. Thrown by Alvin Healy, a.k.a. Tenpin, who first appeared, guess where? That the, same issue of Captain America. <laughs> that was the debut of the Death Throws there. Yes. Uh, he must have been at the end of the line when they were handing out supervillain names, right? They were like, ah, you're going to so. be Tenpin. What is, is there already a gutter ball? All right. <laughs> Tenpin goes, long time no see, Bo Brain. And then someone howls off panel, and it's a guy named Oddball who says, hey, Tenpin, shave something for me. But of course, Oddball, I've got to make sure my big brother and his main squeeze get their shots in. You two clashed with the Hawkster before the rest of us did. Oddball's main squeeze, who could that be? Why, it's Bombshell. She's also a juggler. And uh, one guess as to what she juggles. Watch your mouth, Pinhead. I'm packing a lot of firepower in some of these babies. But before I get my piece... Why don't you tenderize him, Oddball? Now, Oddball is Elton Healy, Alvin's brother, Oddball. Wendy Conrad is Oddball's girlfriend, named Bombshell. The two of them first debuted in uh, Hawkeye Volume 1, Number 3. This is November 1983 by Mark Gruenwald. Oddball chucks a ball at Hawkeye, hits him right in the side. Arg! And then he thinks to himself, cracked one, maybe two ribs. If I don't get out of here, I'm dead. But no matter what direction I go, I'm going to run into one of them. 
I'd say out of all of them, run towards Oddball. He's only the other one's got knives, bombs, you know. Yeah, Oddball's <laughs> only, only got balls. He's just go got that balls. That's, that's fine. Hawkeye <laughs> continues to think almost. Now, isn't it something? After Dark Knight Returns came out, don't you notice that a lot of heroes' ribs became very fragile? <laughs> you ever notice that suddenly they could they couldn't hold their ribs together anymore after that? Uh, the scenes depicted from overhead, looking right down the telephone pole behind Hawkeye. That long, ascending telephone pole. Hmm, Hawkeye scampers up that pole, which annoys the members of the Death Throws. Oddball says, hey, he's getting away! And Ringleader says, to where, Oddball? Hawkeye makes it to the top of the pole and withdraws an arrow. While the Death Throws keep tossing stuff at him, <laughs> bombshells, bombs being the most dangerous, probably. I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, Hawkeye thinks, this is my only chance. Okay, bombshell. Let's hope you weren't bragging about the power of your bombs. Gotta make this shot good. Hawkeye tosses an arrow at one of bombshell's bombs and it explodes because that's how bombs work now. They just explode oh. on contact being sharp. Uh, the explosion <laughs> sends the death throws scattering. Hawkeye takes out a cable arrow and tosses it at a nearby rooftop and it works. So I was like, why does he even bother with the bow? Right? right? It seems like a hindrance <laughs> at this point. Now Hawkeye thinks to himself, I'm it's going to take Oddball and his cronies a little while to pick up the pieces after that. Just long enough for me to get a cable arrow over to that roof. Never thought I'd be able to go get along so well without my bow. Though I'd rather not have to do it for much longer. Again, you seem fine without it, Clint. Just, yeah, it's, it's just up. added weight. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, just holding it's just something on your back. So uh, Hawkeye alights on the rooftop, but not without some wincing. Oomph! And then he thinks, my ribs, legs, and head feel like they're fighting to see which I'll give out first. I've got to rest. Well, I've got some bad news for you, Clint. You're not alone on this roof. Mm-hmm. A fella named Trickshot pops in and goes, Hey, kiddo, long time no see. Hawkeye goes, Trickshot? Now, Buck Chisholm, a.k.a. Trickshot, was a member of the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders, and he first appeared in Solo Avengers number 1. That was December 87. Cover date by Tom DeFalco and Mark Bright. Chisholm actually taught Hawkeye how to shoot arrows, but when Clinton refused to commit a heist after the security guard was injured, Trickshot says they're enemies, and the guard, incidentally, was Hawkeye's brother Barney, so you really can't blame him. No, and we wrap up with the caption, Next-ish, learn what everyone wants from Hawkeye in, hands up, who likes Hawkeye? And I believe the next issue actually did wrap up this arc, hmm. uh, or the one after, I can't remember, but it was. we are looking at the tail end of this weird... penultimate chapter exactly of hawkeye running the gauntlet of all these uh villains that this may be the only time they're ever mentioned on this show or anywhere some of these guys uh mm -hmm. they really <laughs> did they really did drag the d-list for this but it was actually you know hawkeye's uh pantheon from this series His rogues gallery yes so we're gonna head right into the second story no reason to wait around folks uh we're gonna start with the creative team for that uh, beginning with John Byrne, who we all know as John Lindley Byrne, born July 6, 1950, in Wausau, West Midlands, but raised in West Bromwich, England, until he was eight when the family emigrated to Canada. Enrolled at the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary in 1970 and left without graduating after breaking into comics through a fan contest in a company fanzine, Friends of Old Marvel, which was produced by Jim Steranko. We've talked about that plenty of times. Uh, first professional comic sale was Dark Asylum and Giant Size Dracula number 5. That was a June 1975 cover by Marvel Comics. And he drew a two-page story in Nightmare number 20 
August 1974, for Skywald publications written by Al Hewiston. Uh, Byrne really did cut his teeth at Charlton, though. His backup featured an issue of E-Man, written drawn by Joe Staten, features Raj 2000, who's now the Byrne Robotics website mas- mascot. He did Raj 2000 backups in issues number 6, January 75 issue, issue number 7, also January 75 somehow, <laughs> number 9, July 1975, and number 10, September 1975. Also drew Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch, number 2, September 1975, and number 4, January 1976. This was based on a cartoon starring a, a heroic red VW Beetle. Mm-hmm. And he drew Space 1999, issues 3 through 6. It was bi-monthly, March through June 1976, written by Nick Cuddy. Yes, uh, Byrne was brought to Marvel by Chris Claremont, who saw his, who saw his Charlton work. Uh, his first work uh, picked up the Iron Fist story from Pat Broderick, who missed the deadline. This was Marvel premiere number 25, July 1975 cover date. He would go on to do Iron Fist number 1 through 9. This was August 1975 through September 1976, written by Chris Claremont. He drew Champions number 11 through 15. This is November 76 through July 77, written by uh, Bill Mantlo. Drew Marvel Team-Up, issues 68 through 70, April through June 1978, all written by Chris Claremont. Drew the black and white Marvel preview presents Star-Lord, summer 1977 cover, written by Chris Claremont with inks by Terry Austin. Now, Marvel preview was a 14-issue series published by Magazine Management, but affiliated with Marvel for 10 issues. Featured various sci-fi, detective, and adventure characters in solo stories. Uh, perhaps what he's most, most known for for the early 80s, Byrne started drawing X-Men with issue number 108. This is December 1977, written by Chris Claremont. But Byrne would leave the mutants after Uncanny X-Men number 140. That was December 80 cover date. Uh, Claremont added some dialogue that John Byrne didn't dig on a page featuring Colossus tearing the tree from the ground. He had intended this to be an easy task for the powerful Russian, but Claremont added dialogue indicating a struggle, some kind of an ugh or a uh, yeah. got it out, you know. Uh, Byrne said, specifically, it was the way I had drawn Colossus easily ripping that stump out of the ground, replete with flying clumps of earth and speed lines versus the way Chris scripted it. I saw that page and printed and just threw up my hands. Can't do this anymore. I call, and called Wheezy, that was Louise Simonson, who was the editor on X-Men at the time, uh, that same day to resign. <laughs> so that should tell you something about John Byrne, if you didn't know. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, John Byrne <laughs> created Alpha Flight, and their first appearance was in X-Men number 120, April 1979. He said they were never intended uh, to star in their own ongoing title. Uh, quoted, Alpha Flight, the team, were never really meant to be anything more than a bunch of superheroes who could survive a fight with the X-Men. They had no real depth, and I resisted suggestions that they get their own book for a couple of years. Then finally, realizing Marvel would probably get someone else to do it if I didn't, I relented and agreed. And the first issue, cover dated August 83, sold 500,000 issues, which is now no small feat in any era, That's folks. That's a fact. Yeah. Now, uh, Byrne wrote and drew Fantastic Four from issues 232 through 293. This is July 1981 through August of 1986. He would leave Fantastic Four in the middle of a storyline due to differences with Jim Shooter primarily. Uh, this was close to the end of his time at Marvel. Now, Fantastic Four number 294, this is September 1986, was plotted by Byrne, but written by Roger Stern. And uh, we actually did that on uh, a Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, uh, it was our first non 
DC specific. Oh, really? That was uh, I, I actually forgot all about it. How about yeah, that? Yeah, it was a three parter. <laughs> uh, now, now it looks to us like he left before this story was done, or, or maybe you this know, has it was to be on, on, actually we talked about before. This has to be on his way back uh, for eighty. I think so because he went to DC yeah. to do Superman, pretty to much to do Man of Steel, yeah, and then left almost immediately after. That. <laughs> so th- this that we're thinking might be one of his first. Not, first, like after first, his one return. of his early, yeah. early ones on the way back, yeah. Now, uh, if you're interested in a much longer biography on John Byrne, we did one for Weird Comics History, Episode 6. And that's only about John Byrne, and it can be found in the archives. Yeah, very interesting person, so... Worth, he is indeed. Out, <laughs> We're going to jump over to Kieran Doyer. He was born March 6, 1967. He was once the stepson of John Byrne wow. for the period where Byrne was married to Doyer's mother, Andrea uh, Andrea Braun Byrne. That's a hard name to say. Mm-hmm. This was around 1980. Uh, Doyer says, "Well, while I definitely liked his work, I wasn't specific. wasn't specifically a fan of his when we, when they met. It was cool at first, especially for me to watch him draw and see up close how it was done and how, and know that a person could have a very successful career and life in the comics field. He was also very supportive and encouraging of my talents. I mean, that really just cast this whole creative pairing in a." brand new light but anyway very strange right yeah uh doyer's first published comic work was the story the ghost of masahiko tahara in batman number 413 that was november 1987 cover date written by joe duffy he got the job because his stepdad burn recommended him mm. uh kieran is currently a freelance illustrator for high-end advertising agencies and has contributed to many popular ad campaigns uh i may even i might forget but I, he hasn't he has a website and you'd be surprised what he's uh thrown his talents towards he's done a lot of stuff uh lives in portland oregon with his wife birch and son liam mm-hmm. now let's meet the vision mm-hmm. now there was a golden age vision created by joe simon and jack kirby this is not that vision <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no vision is the sensitive android who first appeared in avengers number 57 this is october 1968 cover date by roy thomas stan lee and john buscema roy thomas actually did want to use simon and kirby's vision but Stanley nixed that idea. Now, the robot Ultron created the Vision, a type of android he calls a synthesoid, for use against Ultron's own creator, Dr. Henry Pym, a.k.a. Ant-Man, a.k.a. Giant Man, a.k.a. a whole bunch of other names, right. <laughs> as well as Pym's wife, Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp, among other names. Yeah. Uh, now, the Wasp was the first to encounter the synthesoid and describes <laughs> it as a Vision while trying to escape. Uh, yeah, so the Vision's convinced to turn against Ultron and join the Avengers, and shortly after being turned bad by Ultron a second time, the Vision first meets Wanda Maximoff, the mutant Scarlet Witch. The two eventually marry, and via the Scarlet Witch's hex powers, they have twin boys named Thomas and William, because why not? Sure. In the Vision Quest storyline, this is West Coast Avengers 40 through 42 through 50, March through November 1989 cover dates, all by John Byrne, Rogue agents of the United States government, manipulated by the time traveler Immortus, abduct the Vision and dismantle him. Dr. Pin rebuilds the Vision, but with a chalk-white complexion. And Mm. here we are. Indeed. The story is called Second Debut. Again, by John Byrne and Kieran Doyer. Uh, Kieran also gets co-writing credit for the story. Mm. Now, the cover, we'll hop back to the cover of the book. It depicts the white costumed Vision in Hollywood holding a map to Star's homes. Uh, He's wearing oversized novelty sunglasses, and various people surround and stare at him. 
We've got a homeless guy in tattered clothing with a shopping cart full of garbage, as, as you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bearded dude in a red convertible. A busty woman in a polka dot bikini wearing a Walkman. Yeah, what is that Walkman attached to, Chris? Is he any, anywhere that could be? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> also a muscular guy in a Speedo holding up a tremendous barbell with a single finger. And that's Los Angeles in one page, folks. That's it all is. you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, our opening splash page of this story is a floating vision high above Los Angeles. He is all white, as mentioned, with his white cape fluttering behind him. And we'll let the captions do the heavy lifting here. Los Angeles, California. Every inch of its varied face is known to him, programmed into his infallible computer brain. Yet none of it is truly familiar. None of it is living memory. He looks down at the snail's pace crawl of traffic and wonders in his cold robotic way why this morning's police boltons concern themselves with the theft of a municipal bus. Yeah, it's not getting too far in this traffic anyway. Yeah, you might as well just, yeah. uh, you know, steal the He's bus walk and walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, he asks himself, though the thought does not take place in any human language, who would be mad enough to want a cumbersome a vehicle in this press of steel and glass? Well, let's find out right now. Right. An armored truck is cruising down the street when a municipal bus swerves in front of it, cutting it off. The bus is number 4165, incidentally. If that's your bus, you missed it. You missed it. It's, uh, it hmm? got stolen. Yeah, I don't know if that number is important, but I thought I'd throw <laughs> it in there. Uh, the guards are alarmed, and when and then the bus expels a dark gray cloud that envelops the armored truck behind it. Yeah, the driver goes, hey, what's that coming out of the bus's vent? Looks like smog. Passenger says, it is smog. <laughs> Fill in the cab. <clears throat> Can't breathe. Can't see to steer. The armored truck screeches to a stop and the guards pile out of the smog-filled front cab. The passenger says, Gotta get out! <coughs> get air! A voice is heard within the dense smoke. That's okay, Pops. You don't need to see us cut off all your bread. You'll know it's happened. <sighs> hey, that's right. We didn't introduce ourselves. That's real impolite. You can call us Smog Alert. Can we really? <laughs> the team is three people in armored costumes. The leader, speaking, in a blue-green, and the others in brown and black bodysuits. They each wield yellow weapons. The leader with a mounted with a mounted arm guns. The other guys with crazy high-tech rifles that shoot smog. Of course, of course. Now <laughs> they all have gas masks that look uh, more like something Black Manta might wear. I mean, don't they? They're kind of like like it's like a big dome, yeah. Yeah, Black Manta mask, but turned to the side or something. It's very, uh, very weird. Uh, so smog or visible air pollution is a major problem in many cities and other hev- heavily industrialized areas around the world. Smog has long been a problem in the city of Los Angeles. On July twenty sixth, nineteen forty three, there was a smog so sudden and severe that, quote, Los Angeles residents believe the Japanese are attacking them with chemical warfare, end quote. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Los Angeles would have as many as 200 days of dangerous smog, according to historian Chip Jacobs. At the time of this comic book, there were indeed frequent smog alert days when schools were closed and movement restricted in the 80s. I actually remember a kid uh, came to my school from California talking about that very thing. Uh, this smog is often owed there to there being a lot of cars in Los Angeles, and that certainly doesn't help the air quality, you know. But uh, there really is a unique blend of ge- geographical reasons that makes Los Angeles synonymous for many with smog. 
Yes, uh, Los Angeles is situated in a flat basin with ocean on one side and mountain ranges on three sides. Uh, A nearby cold ocean current depresses surface air temperatures in the area, resulting in an inversion layer, a phenomenon where air temperature increases instead of decreases with altitude, suppressing circulation. All taken together, this results in a relatively thin, enclosed layer of air above the city that cannot easily escape out of the basin and tends to accumulate pollution. Yeah, so it's it's like basically like a bowl with like yeah. a, a thin tarp over it, you know, and just yeah, like... it's a perfect storm it for It really is, <laughs> that like kind just of to trap uh, pollution in there. Now, stricter regulations on vehicles sold and owned in California, as well as the disuse of coal and the almost complete shutdown of all manufacturing within Los Angeles, have improved conditions considerably. Air concentrations of volatile organic compounds declined by a factor of 50 between 1962 and 2012, and concentrations of air pollutants such as nitrous oxides and ozone declined by 70% to 80% over the same period of time. I don't know who's uh, if they're using uh, aerosol hairspray anymore either. So that kind of no, fell I out think, of style. I think they killed that so, too. Yeah, there, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of changes, not just in California too, uh, around everywhere. Sure. But, uh, now. Back to the story, we have the armored car guards fainting right there on the street. Yeah, smog alert leader says, they're out, Sanchez. Get the keys. Open the back. Sanchez says, you got it, boss man. (laughs) Sanchez grabs the keys, and he and the other guy make it to the back of the truck. Man, oh man, this is sweet. All these months of work are going to pay off big time. The other guy says, don't waste your time gassing about it, man. Just crack this piggy bank and split. There's too many superheroes in this town since the Avengers opened up a franchise. We don't want to waste time in case of them. Oh, spit! And the two open the back of the truck to find Vision's already hanging out inside. Yes, Vision goes, My programming informs me vehicles such as this are for the conveyance of valuables from one point to another. Withdrawals are not made en route. Uh, The other guy says, That voice! Who... It don't matter. Smog him. And the smog alert flunkies pour smog into the back of the armored truck. But Vision's fist emerges and knocks Sanchez for a loop. Sanchez! He will be unharmed, though no longer conscious. I did not strike him with my full strength. My programming indicates that would have been lethal. Yeah? Well, excuse me if I don't show you the same consideration. Spooky, eat this! The smog alert minion fires a pistol at the Vision's chest several times. Which, of course, doesn't bother him one bit. It doesn't even seem to annoy him. Uh, My scan indicates your projectiles are metallic and non-combustible. I will reduce my density sufficient to allow them to pass through me while slowing their forward momentum. This avoiding the engineering of any humans behind me. Hey, uh, Vision, you ever ever thought that you didn't say aloud, maybe? Right? Think of that, baby. Uh, from the white forehead gem in the Vision's brow, he fires a red beam at the pistol that turns its hot. Also, I will prevent the further use of your weapon. Ah! You melted the gun! Burned me! Scanning indicated no damage to surface tissue. But then Sanchez woke up. Oh yeah? Well, surface tissue this! Sanchez charges the Vision, who turns intangible, causing Sanchez to fall through and then on top of his colleague. The vision touches them to render the hoods more permanently unconscious. Now there's just Smog Alert's leader to take care of. He's grabbed a hostage, a very tan blonde woman, in a miniskirt and string bikini top. (laughs) 
Only in California. Mm-hmm. Smuggler leader says, I kind of thought you'd be getting back to me. That's why I collected me a little insurance. Now back off before I waste this bimbo. The vision dissolves into the ground and says, as you wish. You sure it's not. As you wish. <laughs> the hostage says, he, he left me. And smuggler leader says, yeah, yeah, sure. Guess he knew when he was, when he was beat, huh? Vision reappears behind the leader of the smog alert and taps him on the shoulder. That's a favorite move of mine. Yeah. Uh, it's not clear if a nerve pinch or the mere appearance of the vision causes the leader to faint right away. Oh. Huh? Are you all right, miss? You're out of danger now. The hostage throws her arms around the vision and buries her face into his chest. Here we can see that she's also wearing pink roller skates only in california (laughs) she says oh wow you saved me what can i ever do to repay you it is possible you have experienced a trauma would you like me to convey you to a hospital Uh, no that won't be necessary she thinks to herself why do i always get the live ones what did she want to do with the vision i I think we know (laughs) (laughs) Well, she doesn't get a chance because a cop pulls up to the scene. Vision goes, how may I assist you, officers? Uh, One cop in a crew cut bellows at Vision through a bullhorn. He says, just step away from the guy that keeps your hands in plain sight. Miss, are you all right? The hostage stands defiantly in front of the Vision, hip on hand, and uh, really showing us how little her bikini top is concealing. (laughs) Only in California. Uh, Don't get so hostile, Flattop. He's been doing your job for you. He saved me. Apparently this is good enough for the police officer. Oh, uh, that's all right then. Lower your weapons, men. Somehow it just doesn't seem like proper police procedure, right? No, I mean, if she was a hostage. She said so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, if she says she's fine. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) cop introduced himself to Vision. He says, sorry for the mistake, pal. I didn't recognize you as one of the good guys. You new in town? Uh, care for a donut? And like, does he just have donuts in his pockets? Like, what do you, what do you, where are you going to get them from? You just, those are, those are station issue, I think. I right? guess I mean, what, he's got a, a holster for his gun and a holster for his donuts. <laughs> no fishing goes. No to both queries, officer. I do not eat, and I am not new in town. I am the Vision. The Vision, huh? Well, what the heck happened to you, pal? You sure don't look like the ID photos we got back at the station. Though, to be fair, many of them have been defaced with magic marker mustaches and stink lines, so... And teeth blacked out. They're yeah. not perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Vision goes, no, I expect I do not. I was recently dismantled, necessitating considerable effort to reassemble my android body. Disassembled? You mean like in... They took you apart? Didn't that hurt? He's a robot. Yeah. Uh, the vision takes off into the night sky. At least uh, we think that's the night sky. It seems it's got it's like dusk, maybe. I don't <laughs> it's, know. It's dusky. The vision goes, I cannot say. I have no memory of the event. Now, if you'll excuse me. Uh, yeah, sure. But if I were you, I'd find some way to let some people know you're you before you scare somebody to death. Maybe a name tag or something. Uh, now, floating above Los Angeles, the Vision considers the police officer's advice. 
He floats, he floats past a billboard advertising Tower of Shadows, Saturday at 9 on KTNS, hosted by Digger. Now, Tower of Shadows is a horror anthology comic that was published by Marvel Comics between 1969 and 1975. Those comics were hosted by Digger, a grave digger. It was created by Jim Starenko and first appeared in Tower of Shadows number 1, September 1969 cover date. Another billboard behind the vision reads, Hey kids, read Night Shift. And Night Shift is a team of supervillains in Marvel Comics that debuted in Captain America number 330. That was a June 87 cover date. That's a group of monsters and ghouls organized under the villain Shroud, who, at this point in the, in the world, uh, fight the West Coast Avengers now and again, and Digger is on that team. Mm. Uh, despite the billboard, however, there never was a Night Shift series for Marvel. Yes. Vision goes, The officer is correct. My new appearance, while not greatly different from my original form, is nonetheless different enough that I might strike fear into those that is my intent to aid. It is therefore necessary that I make my changed form known to as many people as possible in as short a time as possible. I must scan my programmed memory for the most... Efficacious. Efficacious. <laughs> I've never heard of that word either. It's such a weird word. I must scan my program memory for the most efficacious manner in which to achieve this end. This must be before they came up with the word efficient, I think. was. I guess, yeah. Was, uh, and they, that's a very efficient thing to do. <laughs> probably. It shortened that up a little. <laughs> and so the Vision does the obvious thing and decides he should appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Hey. Uh, the Tonight Show is a late night talk show airing on NBC uh, weeknights at 11.30. That's why I said that at the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. Since 1954, it is the world's longest running talk show and the longest running regularly scheduled entertainment program in the United States, as well as the third long- longest running show on NBC after news and talk shows today and meet the press. Comedian Johnny Carson was the host from 1962 to 1992 and would have been the host when this issue of Avengers Spotlight came out. John William Carson, October 23rd, 1925, and passed uh, January 23rd, 2005, began his broadcasting career in 1950 at Omaha, Nebraska television station. Uh, Mind you, nothing in this comic ever says The Tonight Show or Johnny Carson, (laughs) nor are the other celebrity guests named, but it's very clear who they're supposed to be, so we're going to go with it, okay? But don't, don't, I don't want any legal problems to go to Marvel. There's technically, it's not, not clear. Uh, the Vision shows up unannounced on t- to the Tonight Show stage while William Shatner is speaking, the Tambourine Man. Mm-hmm. Please do not be alarmed. I am Vision of the Avengers. I wish only to take a moment of your time to... When the crowd murmurs, you know, who's who the Vision? What's he doing? Oh, oh, who's, who's this guy? <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> William Shatner was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada on March 22nd, 1931. Perhaps best known for his role as Captain James T. Kirk on the Star Trek television show and various movies. And maybe as the title character of T.J. Hooker. That's how I like uh, it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's released a lot of spoken word in the form of reciting popular song lyrics in exaggerated, stilted style. Uh, he's released a bunch of spoken word albums, and here's a discog- dis- the, the, the discography, even. Yeah. We have The Transformed Man in 1968 by Decca Records. William Shatner Live in 1977. It's a live double album from Lemley Records. You got Has Been in 2004 from Shout Factory. Exodus, an, entire, an oratorio in three parts in 2008 in JMG Jewish Music. Uh, Seeking Major Tom, 2011 on Cleopatra Records. And Ponder the Mystery, 2013 
by Cleo, on Cleopatra Records again. I, I ponder the mystery on how he has so many albums. That's pretty amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, now Johnny Carson uh, decides to make some adjustments to the guest list. Yeah, he says, okay, I guess we won't be bringing out Norman Mailer just yet. Forgive me for intruding on the taping of your program, sir. It seemed the most logical way to reach the largest number of people. Yeah, it's too bad Alf tapes like months ahead of time because it just right? never gotten there. Johnny and all says, the trap doors on that set too would be a mess. That's true. He'd, he'd just be <laughs> falling through. He does phase through. Be, I think he could float around. Uh, hey, Willie. <laughs> uh, Johnny says, well, I guess that's as close to a compliment as I ever got from a machine. Take a seat, why don't you, Viz? Thank you, but I am not a machine. I'm a synthesoid, an artificial man. Yeah, check your privilege, Car- check your privilege Carson. You know, right? get it right. Yeah, he assumed his uh, whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> now, Vision sits down closest to Johnny Carson, and further down the couch are these, this evening's previous two desks, two, ge- <laughs> two guests even. We have Charo and Pee Wee Herman. Maria del Rosario Mercedes Pilar Martinez Molina Boeza, professionally known simply by her stage name Charo, is a Spanish-American actress, comedian, and flamenco guitarist. She's been performing on stage and television since 1963 and currently holds a regular headlining gig in Branson, Missouri. Oh, yes, the, uh, you know... The, the Nashville Las of the Midwest. Vegas of the Midwest or whatever, yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, is an actor and comedian born August 27, 1952, in Peekskill, New York. At the time of this comic, he would be at the pinnacle of his, of his success with the Saturday morning variety kid show Pee Wee's Playhouse. This would come crashing down on him in 1991, but we're going to let another podcast tell that story. Let's keep this... Happy, we keep this one right? clean. Yeah. Right. Char goes, Ay, caramba! You don't look artificial to me. Pee Wee says, No, you look more like Jambi. Only he's not real either. I am not acquainted with the person you mention. Johnny says, I guess not. You might call him the poor man's Doctor Strange, right, Paul? Hey, you, might, you might say that. We don't see uh, Ed McMahon here. Unfortunately. Uh, you, you might say that. Only I'm not poor. <laughs> Hey, if you're really the Vision, is it true you used to be a human torch? No, although that was once believed to be the case, it has since been proven otherwise. The original human torch was an android, whereas I am a synthesoid. Does that mean you're seen, senor? Gucci, Gucci. Gucci, Gucci. I am programmed in 700 languages along with the dialects and subtongues, but I am unfamiliar with that phrase. Might I ask its meaning? It means loosen up, Viz. Anyone who flies around barefoot should be more laid back. Uh, so as long as we're all here and the tape's rolling, why don't you cue us into why you uh, dropped in like this? Thank you. As I stated, I came here primarily with the intent of assuring your viewing audience that, although I no longer look like the vision they might remember from newspaper and television reports, I am, in fact, still that self-same individual. And it is my hope that I will be able to continue to be of service to the populace at large, as I have been in the past. Service? Hey, you want to do a girl a good service? Don't waste your time, Chiquita. Somehow I don't think this guy's your idea of a fun date. And then Vision turned to Johnny Carson in gratitude. Thank you for your time, sir. May I assure you that this will be presented on this t- on tonight's broadcast? Oh, count on it, Viz. If I can have your word, you're not going to drop it on Patton Arsenio, too? 
Now he's referring to Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak, who hosted a very short-lived late-night TV show on CBS from January 9th, 1989 to April 13th, 1990, and Arsenio Hall, who hosted a syndicated late-night talk show from January 3rd, 1989 until May 27th, 1994. Vision goes, That had been my plan, but I am willing to forego it if it will facilitate the prompt airing of this program. And the Vision disappears into the ground beneath his chair. And now... Good afternoon. Now back at the West Coast Avengers headquarters, they're all watching this episode of The Night Show and having a good laugh at it. Tigris says, Man, oh man, oh man, Vision, you are too much. U.S. agent goes, Too much? Is that all you have to say, Tigra? I can't believe he did that. I just can't believe it. Pim, you reprogrammed him after his memory was erased? Is this your doing? And Hank Pym says, no, no, it isn't, but I wish it was. I really wish it was. Wonder Man goes, visual, buddy. You may not look like yourself anymore, but I think there's hope for you yet. We got to do a whole Wonder Man comic just so you can. I think we do. (laughs) Uh, Wasp is sitting on the Vision's head, holding her stomach with laughter, and Scarlet Witch is behind the Vision, kind of hand to her face, chuckling behind it, you know, but being a little more reserved about it yeah uh tigra hank pym and wonder man are laughing out loud and uh vision is not amused caption reads be sure to follow the ongoing exploits of the vision as he relearns the ways of the world every month in west coast avengers hey oh and that is the end of that yeah we, we were missing ed mcmahon on that uh lineup mm-hmm. i was kind of hoping there'd be somebody there but i guess they felt like they had a Probably push the legal, the legal department as far as they're going to go. <laughs> uh, so I had a good time with this comic. Especially, oh, this was a blast. Especially yeah. the Vision story. The Hawkeye story was pretty much paint by Boiler numbers. Boilerplate. Boiler uh, yeah. I definitely got off on seeing ridiculous villains like Bullet Biker and uh, <laughs> uh, the, de- the Death Throws. Yeah, those guys. <laughs> but, uh, but had I been a child paying for it, I might have felt differently. Although... It, you know, as a kid, I probably would have thought it was awesome. Been like, wow, sure. Bullet Biker is sure to be the biggest villain in Marvel now. You get know? his action figure. Oh yeah. god, when are we going to get the Bullet Biker miniseries? Uh, <laughs> the Vincent story was a lot of fun, though. Uh, that was a blast. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was very silly. Definitely, I would say it's a comedy story. Uh, even sure. even the Smog Alert bit was very silly, <laughs> but uh, I had a good time with it, and uh, I could definitely see. I try to think of it from you know Aaron's perspective of his first comic. Sure. This this would make you go get another one. You know, what I, I think mean? so. You'd be like, oh, this was. I don't know if it was the first comic he ever read, but his first he ever bought, and to be like, oh, that was all right. You know what I mean? I had a mm-hmm. good time with that, and uh, I don't know. I assume guys like you know Pee Wee and Charo and Johnny Carson were familiar to him, so it does help to give the illusion that this is the world outside your window. You know, this is Certainly. all taking place. So. Uh, yeah, I, I had a good time with it. I appreciate having read it. I probably would never have read it otherwise. Oh, yeah, I, I don't see why we, we would have got it's just it. such a random issue. It but is, it was, but it was so much fun. That's what so we had. We had a great time with it, but we have some more amazing information about the, the location that Aaron purchased this issue. Yes, we're going to talk a little bit about Pamita. Now, Pamita was a chain of department stores with more than 175 locations in 16 Midwestern and West Central U.S. states. The Pamita name represents the first two letters of the first names of co-founder DJ Witherspoon's three sons, Pat, Mike, and David. Pa-mi-da. Now, uh, Pamita had its beginnings as a in a rack jobber business begun in 1938 by Jim DJ Witherspoon, a company that by 1948 became known as New Way Drug Service. 
Now, a rack jobber, or also known as a rack merchandiser, is a trader that has an agreement with a retailer to display and sell products that they maintain and restock in a store. They just kind of use the space. Uh, rack jobbing began in the 1930s with the music dealer's service with their music sheets racks, which they operated. Other items that rack jobbers supply have been beauty aids, greeting cards, hardware, and paperback books and toys. Indeed, if Aaron bought Avengers Spotlight 23 off a spinner rack and not from a magazine section, which is pretty likely to, I'm not sure how it was set up, it may have been maintained by a comic book rack jobber itself. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like a merchandiser. Exactly. Um, now, uh, the acquisition by Witherspoon of a distribution business in 1962 brought Lee Wagoner to the, into the company, and Pomita Inc. was founded as a holding company for Witherspoon's businesses. From its inception as Pomita Inc. in 1963, Pomita targeted small rural communities as the preferred location for its discount stores, quickly expanding into trading areas with populations below 15,000. Able to expand with virtually no local discount competition, Pomita flourished during its inaugural decade, establishing a foundation that would support the company during the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. But by the mid-1990s, when the company operated 40 in-store pharmacies as a complementary money owner to its mainstay business of selling apparel, toys, home furnishings, houseware, stationery, and other merchandise, with Witherspoon and Wegner, Wegener sold to Pomita in 1981 to employees in 1986, a unit of Citicorp acquired a controlling interest in the company. So in 1999, Shopco Stores Incorporated purchased Pomita for $110 million, operating it as a separate division within Shopco. On January 4th, 2012, it was announced that Shopco and Pomita would merge and that Pomita stores would be rebranded as Shopco Hometown Stores. Uh, in that initial merging, six Pomita stores were closed uh, in Sparta, Michigan, Litchfield, Minnesota, Ontonagon, Michigan. I should have made you say these. Uh, <laughs> Albia, Iowa, Corydon, Iowa, and Mount Vernon, Missouri. Uh, they did not convert, but several locations have been closed since. And it's been, I, to be honest, Chris, I, I expect to see more of a, uh, where is my, you know, Pamita gone? Yeah. People don't seem that broken up about it, i got to be honest with you. <laughs> at, least not, at least not on the internet. There's a little bit of the, uh, you know, memories of Pomita stuff, but it definitely doesn't have the kind of cachet of some other some other location, some other stores that I've, I've read about. No, I'm, I'm still missing wall bombs and path marks, so I don't know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, uh, for our hook this week, we're going to talk about, because a lot of people don't like this this white vision outfit here. I, it was definitely I, I kind of dig it. But, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is definitely a, a kind of arguable uh, hook sure. that we're saying here, but that's that's fine. Yeah, I, I kind of it's because I mean he's a, he's a robot. That kind of thing can happen to a robot. I'm cool sure. with it. Uh, but we're going to talk about some of comics' most horrible superhero costume changes, and getting it out of the way up front, we are not going to mention all the costume redesigns in the new Fifty Two. No. We'll just say the new Fifty Two right now, and we'll be done with it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Covered the whole thing. Now let's keep going. Now we're going to start with. Ben Grimm. We got uh, in Fantastic Four number three. This is March 1962 cover date by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Sue uh, Richards fashions, or Sue Storm at the time, fashions costumes for the whole team, which looks similar to the costumes that they already wore. Except for Ben Grimm's, which includes a full-face metal helmet and a form-fitting bodysuit. Finding it a little too constricting, Ben rips it off moments later before engaging in a battle. And his shirtless, maskless look is maintained with minimal changes for decades. 
He would eventually return to that helmet after a scrap with Wolverine left his gorgeous face covered in adamantium burn, though. Oh, yeah, just covered it up just for a little... Until yeah, it for, until it healed, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the starkest changes in a superhero's look had nothing to do with their costume. It was the actual body that changed. Hank McCoy was a member of the original X-Men team, debuting in X-Men number 1, September 1963 cover by Lee and Kirby. Here, he was just a normal-looking young fellow with a large vocabulary. Kind of big hands, big feet, goonish, but... Yeah. More or less, look kind of rakish, actually, kind of a handsome fellow. Uh, mm. When Hank turned 20, determining that he was no longer one of the strangest teens, he left the X-Men and went to work for the Brand Corporation at Genetics Research Facilities. In Amazing Adventures, Volume 2, Number 11, that was March 1972, issued by Jerry Conway and Tom Sutton, Hank is a furry beast, although gray in the first issue would be blue ever after. That looks something like a cross between a dog and a gorilla. Would you say that's like kind of right? Yeah. Uh, in this issue, he reflects on the instance that made him into that cast member from Monsters Incorporated, <laughs> which is essentially that he drank a chemical compound that ignited a new mutation. Yeah, somebody was going to steal the uh, this compound, so he drank it. That's it. But, you know, uh, <laughs> if, 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 if I can't have it, no one can have it. Anyway. <laughs> and then he actually he, he learned how to uh, do theater makeup and made a an actual Hank... A Hank McCoy mask, mask? that he wow. wore. <laughs> Ridiculous. Okay. That must have looked look normal. And it all happened in like a day, so that's pretty good too. But wait, there's more. In <laughs> New X-Men number 114, this is July 2001 cover date, by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, Hank undergoes a second mutation, or a second meowtation, <laughs> due, to, due to a mutant baby boom happening at the time. Okay. <laughs> this gives him a distinctly feline appearance. Which is great for cat lovers. And, uh, yeah, I guess this might be his third mutation since he had the one, the two, the three. Would uh, it be? I mean, the first uh, one. Anyway, uh, whatever. And he used a giant kitty litter pan, so we that there's that, too. There was a lot of cat stuff back then. Yes. I was, when I was looking into it, I was like, oh, they really milked this for uh, Big cat, time. Cat milk. <laughs> anyway, uh, the next one is very well known. After almost three decades of Wonder Woman comics... Two of them written, edit, written and edited by Robert Kanaga, who admitted to never reading a comic book, even his own, in the entire time. Yep. <laughs> Diana's popularity was on the wane in the uh, late 60s. Since Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did a good job bringing Batman back from his television show Corniness, DC editor Jack Miller asked O'Neill if he would retool Wonder Woman for modern sensibilities. So he stripped Diana Prince of her powers and made her a karate-chopping super spy who traveled with an old Chinese dude named Ai Ching. Beginning in Wonder Woman number 178, October 1968, cover by O'Neill and Mike Sikowski. Uh, it wasn't really that she got a worse costume. Arguably, she got a better one, right? I mean, mm. it was like the artist's best approximations of fashions from the day. And as I heard, Trina Robbins even designed some, and they took like uh, some. But uh, the wrongheadedness of the fix, really. Yeah. I mean, they, they just took the temperature of the situation very badly, and how it completely changed the character, warranted a place on the list. Not to mention. Boy, that I Ching, they really did that poor guy dirty. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, just a year before the New 52, she got another costume change when uh, J. Michael Straczynski came on. And she had this Jim Lee redesign where she was wearing like like a jean jacket almost. Oh, boy. And like long pants. It was a uh, – it was – it was almost like she was getting ready to do a cross-country walk. Well, there there but, was uh, that one. Maybe she was going to hang out and go on Superman Grounded. Huh? She was going to be like, that, look, that sounds like fun. I'm going to go. Anyway, but uh, there was also that time in the 90s. She very briefly had like, gosh, I can't even explain it. It was like a, an evening gown meets mm. 
like a stripper's evening gown. I guess that's a, the quickest way to put it. But she had that so briefly, although there are some of on this that she, there are also people had briefly sure. uh, that we didn't put it on here. But yeah, there, there have been some corkers, boy. Absolutely. Uh, one of the fellows we talked about today, Hawkeye. Let's talk about him a bit. Uh, since Avenger Spotlight is primarily a Hawkeye solo comic, got to mention the time that he dis- ditched his usually that purple butterfly yeah. <laughs> costume for a breezier, more aerodynamic number. Now, following the events of the Kree Scroll War, this is 1971 through March of 1972, Clint took over the role of Goliath, a role that was previously held by Hank Pym, who used to be Ant Man because he had gone missing. We're just going to roll with just it. Just roll with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, when Hank shows up again in Avengers number 98, this is April 72 cover date by Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith, Clint goes back to his old arrow slinging ways, but this time in a light blue tunic with a plunging neckline and. Uh, a skirt. Yeah, there's no right? other way to put it. It's no just, other way to put it. It's just a skirt. Yeah. Uh, he did. Uh, he did manage to keep the uh, cuffed purple boots, though. So. Which does, doesn't really help things either, folks. I'll tell you. <laughs> it doesn't. Nope. No. He would keep this look until Avengers number one hundred and nine. This is March nineteen seventy three, cover date by Steve Englehart and Don Heck. When everyone decided that he looked better in the purple triangle mask, which he did, arguably. Uh, you know, Chris... is, is he back in that now? No. Uh, he's well, still in the sunglasses, the, yeah, the movie he's, version. He's a, he's in like the cool mercenary outfit. I yeah. like, to be honest, I couldn't. I actually could be wrong because I I don't think I've seen him <laughs> since Legacy started. But I know that before Legacy, it was you know the bandoli the, the, movie. the movie version. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you and I have talked about a little bit about Hawkeye and how when I was a kid, I was just like thought his costume was too ridiculous to be mm. understood. But had I seen this other version, I definitely would have appreciated <laughs> the uh, butterfly mask a lot better. Uh, now, this is a huge one uh, about Kitty Pride. A few heroes have had as many costume changes as Kitty Pride of the X-Men. She first appeared in X-Men number 129, that was January 1980, but first appeared in a yellow and black X-Men costume along with the name Sprite in X-Men 139, that was November 1980, by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Another 10 issues later in X-Men 149, that was September 1981, uh, by Claremont and Dave Cockrum, Kitty reveals a new costume to Professor X. A gold bodysuit with cuff shorts and leotard top with lightning bolts on it, rocket-powered roller skates and leg warmers, and a mask that looks like it was rejected by Scarlet Witch. Uh, <laughs> Professor X tells it it sucks and to change clothes. And he does that because Professor X is a jerk. Yeah, he can be. <laughs> Now, not to be thwarted, Kitty reveals a new costume design in X-Men King Size Annual Number 5, cover dated October 1981 by Claremont and Brent Anderson. This time, a two-toned pink bodysuit with a tan cape and golden accessories, including a crown. <laughs> what? Mm, this is it's like Punky Brewster as a, as a, uh, as a superhero. Where'd here. she get the crown? You know, <laughs> Punky Brewster didn't have a crown. Like, what is that? What? Anyway. Well, Professor X gives this one the thumbs down, too, and it's back to the sewing machine for her. Not even a year after that, in Uncanny X-Men number 155, that was March 82 cover by Claremont and Cockrum, the team finds themselves on board an alien spaceship that has a special device called the Dress Yourself Miracle Machine that creates any clothing imaginable, <laughs> which must be have been pretty convenient for her. Uh, Kitty goes through four costume changes, like, right away. Even throughout the issue, she even pops out a couple of more. The four initial ones are a green evening gown, something that looks like Dick Grayson's original Robin outfit, uh, but all in gold. Uh, a costume with heavy blue cape and a hairstyle reminiscent of Napoleon Bonaparte's hat, 
And Darth Vader. That's her fourth option to be Darth Vader. (laughs) For the next few issues after that, Kitty is rarely seen in the same costume twice. She wears an outfit like Peter Pan's, one like a patriotic S&M fetishist, and one like a swashbuckling pirate. And Kitty even dresses up like Dark Phoenix to play a little prank. Which uh, must have been a prank on Jim Shooter, right? I think all of this. I mean, you know, Jim Shooter, who liked characters to be consistent and recognizable, was like, what are you doing? It's just a big middle finger it's to like, Jim Shooter. On. Now, in the graphic novel X-Men God Loves Man Kills from 1982 by Claremont and Anderson, Kitty adopts a green and yellow costume, not unlike what Domino would be wearing years later. It looks bad, but given some of the outfits she's sported, it seems positively reserved yeah, by it, comparison. It, it almost looks normal. Look <laughs> uh, Kitty dresses up in a Flashdance-inspired headband and what looks like a dentist bib around her neck. <laughs> in Uncanny X-Men number 175, a November 1983 cover, by Claremont, Paul Smith, and John Romita Jr. The Dress Yourself Miracle Machine makes a comeback in Uncanny X-Men annual number 8, September 1984 issue, by Claremont and Steve Leahola. When Kitty Pride undergoes another round of quick costume changes, these designed by underground cartoonist and the first woman to draw Wonder Woman years later, uh, not much later, but years after yeah. this, Trina Robbins. Uh, Kitty Pride becomes Shadow Cat in Kitty Pride and Wolverine number five. That was March 85 cover by Claremont Al Milgram. And here she wears a long yellow scarf, tinted shades, a leather jacket, and a spiky haircut. And you know what? She only looks like Annie, Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics here, considering her past outfits. This is a pretty normal look for her. Uh, you know, she, she, she could have stuck here, but she didn't. But anyway. <laughs> now we're going to go to the other side of the street here. Uh, for years, Bruce Wayne's ward and Batman's sidekick ran around in the same Robin costume. Naked legs, sleeveless tunic, pixie shoes, and a domino mask. Like a lot of years. This uh, <laughs> character did debut in Detective Comics number 38 way back in April 1940, after all. Now, what looked coquettish and cute when Dick was sprightly young lad became... Creepy and unsettling <laughs> really, as he yeah. entered college. <laughs> Not to mention when he was heading up the Teen Titans. I remember when you watched uh, the Batman show and Burt Ward made you feel weird. Imagine that was like really happening, like in real <laughs> yeah. life. You'd be like, yeesh. <laughs> you had to figure he's got to like shave his legs. Oh, and, no, uh, that, more than that, too. A lot, of, you know, it's pretty tight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, after several issues of rumination, in Tales of the Teen Titans number 44, July 1984, by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, Dick emerges to Jericho, his mom, and the world in his new guise as Nightwing, sporting a one-piece dark blue bodysuit with a very high light blue collar and some kind of yellow fringe on his chest and shoulders. He's uh, often referred to as Disco Dick. (laughs) His costume is now remembered fondly by those who still listen to Cool in the Gang without irony. Yeah, uh, you know, it it does touch me a little bit. Uh, I think it's just nostalgia. Uh, I think yeah. even, even when it debuted, it was a little late for the disco craze, but it's definitely, I'd say it's still better than the the, the Robin costume on a 19-year-old, okay? Is that, is that yeah. fair enough to say? <laughs> and it's it's one of those uh, George Perez costumes that only look good when George it's Perez true. Yeah, It's true, yeah, it's true. Only he can draw it, yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, here's one that I really enjoyed uh, getting into, talking about Frank Castle. After being mm. beaten severely and disfigured while in prison, Frank Castle escapes and heads to an under- underworld plastic surgeon who could change his look. And boy, does he change it. In Punisher Volume 2, number 59, January 92 cover, by Mike Barron, Hugh Haynes, and Jimmy Palmiotti, he turns the Punisher black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Frank even teams up with Luke Cage in Chicago for a t- <laughs> short time. Oh, God. 
I just found that so ridiculous. I was like, isn't oh, it? You know, it's like then, then he went over to hang out in Wakanda anyway. Uh, but his, <laughs> but his plastic surgery fades very conveniently, and he's back to the old familiar white dude by the end of issue sixty-two, April ninety-two cover by Marcus McLaurin and Val Mayeric from Mike Barron's plots. Though probably very loosely, we're thinking. Wisely, loosely, yeah. from the sounds of it. But now that's not the only time the Punisher has been made to suffer the indignity of a character change. As part of the late 90s Marvel Knights initiative, this is the first wave, uh, they meant to jazz up Marvel characters uh, for the times. Christopher Golden and Thomas E. Snagoski, with Bernie Wrightson illustrating, put out The Punisher Volume 4 also known as The Punisher Purgatory, a four-issue series that came out between 98 and 99. After Frank Castle's suicide, Uh he returns as an angel of vengeance, except with guns instead of wings. Uh, No one one ever thought of that before. That's very good. Right? Uh, Now, the angelic Punisher made a return in the four-issue miniseries Wolverine and the Punisher, Revelation. came out June through September 1999. And then is uh, outside of once has never been spoken of again. I think people try to avoid that one, but uh, they keep going yeah. back to this final one that, that's on the list. Uh, after the events of Marvel's <laughs> Dark Rain branding left Frank Castle dead and in pieces, he's stitched together by Morbius and the Legion of Monsters in Punisher Volume 8. Number 11. That was probably my most amazing thing. But a lot of volumes of yeah. Punisher, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I think Jeff, they're on like 12 or 13 I now, mean, seriously. You know, there's more volumes of that than my encyclopedia. That, right? That doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway, Punisher Volume 8, number 11, was a January 2010 cover by Rick Remender and Tony Moore. Uh, he remains a patchwork monster for most of the rest of the series. It was even retitled Franken Castle from issue 17 until its conclusion in number 21. Mm. Now, we talked about Ben Grimm earlier. Let's talk about another Fantastic Four member here. We have, uh, after the events of the Infinity War, uh, Sue uh, Richards decides to try on a new look. This is Fantastic Four issue 371, uh, December 1992, by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan. It's often referred to as the stripper outfit by fans, and uh, it's a good reason for that, because it looks like a stripper outfit. It really does. I mean, this isn't one of those cases where... where People are being very demure and offended. Yeah. It looks like she's about to strip. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> she's got white thigh-high boots and arm-length gloves. Uh, those are actually the most concealing articles <laughs> of clothing on this costume. That is otherwise like a pornographic tuxedo with a boob windshield in the shape of the number four. Turns out she was manifesting her other personality. This is when Malice tried to take over That's at the right. time. And so, luckily, this costume change is short-lived. Eh, fair enough. <laughs> Probably not not uh, short or long it's, enough for different people. Yes, it's, it's, it's gone but not forgotten. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> so, this is a, a, a big favorite. During the Night Quest leg of the Nightfall story arc in uh, Batman Comics, 1993-1994, in which Bane broke Bruce Wayne's back, protege, protege and hypnotized churchy assassin Jean-Paul <laughs> Valley takes over the role of Batman while Bruce recuperates and makes some modifications to the suit. It's sort of cool because it changes over a few issues. I always thought it was like yeah. something was happening there. Uh, with the full reveal happening in Detective Comics number 6675, June 1994, covered eight by Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. Uh, the new Batsy was designed by Joe Casada, a fact that he'll tell you himself if you stand near him for ten minutes. It's like Did the- he create Deadpool? He, he, might, he won't say that, but... Uh, I mean, it's got to be like the... the, the the, the biggest unsecret in comics that he that yes. he designed that. Uh, anyway, but, yeah, same thing with Liefeld. And you'll find out who created Deadpool if you stand near <laughs> Liefeld for five minutes. 
Uh, it couldn't be more different than the usual Batman costume, though. It's bulletproof, has a flamethrower, full automatic weapons, metal blades sticking out of the back instead of a cape, and a full-on helmet with a red visor like RoboCop. And, yeah, it originally shot those bat discs, remember? And then it shot yep. bullets at the end, uh, which was, you know, very not Batman. But it was actually meant to poke fun at some of the superhero costume designs coming from a certain upstart comics publisher that began by former Marvel artists, which we may have mentioned a few times on the show. I can't sure. imagine what <laughs> yeah. you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> now we're going to go, we're stick with DC here. We're just going to go a little green. <laughs> During the events of uh, Emerald Twilight, Parallax destroyed Guy Gardner's power ring, left him defenseless and without an eye for a little while. Now Guy is looking for a new power source, even wearing a modified rocket red suit for an issue, uh, though he seems to tool around in some modified biker gear. Now, in Guy Gardner, Warrior number 22 is July 1994 by Bo Smith and, R- and Mitch Bird. Guy drinks from the, quote, Water of the Warriors, which activated powers left in his bloodline from the Voldarian alien race a millennium ago. This gives him some disgusting shape-shifting <laughs> abilities, which he uses to form weapons while still making boneheaded constructs. Yeah, like, you can't think of anything better than to just make a gun out of his arm. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> He also grows back his eye, so there's that. That's nice. Now, more disturbingly, he ditches the bowl cut for a spiky haircut and struts around like a low-budget Ultimate Warrior minus the fringe in uh, black and orange spandex pants and tribal body paint that would make the Cleveland Indians hang their heads in shame. (laughs) (laughs) Now, considering his silly look, the series is better than it has any right to be. It lasted until... It's it's a real fun issue. Uh, It's a real fun series. Um, Now, it listed until issue 44, this is July 1996, cover date, by Bo Smith, Mitch Bird, and a handful of contributing artists. Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't mean to to denigrate it too much, so the costume... No, it's it's a fun series. It really is a fun series. He owns a bar, and even the stuff before he puts on this this, uh, costume, he still has a kind of a... He's got that guide gardener to him, so if you like that, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not something you have to miss just based on the costume. I want to miss some of the comics we're going to talk about here at the end. <laughs> uh, so, after being deprived of solar energy stemming from a series of events coming from the de- his death and rebirth, Superman develops electricity-based powers that require a special blue and white containment suit, and for him to have a punky haircut for some reason, which beats the mullet I guess, that he had. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this costume debuted in full in Superman Volume 2, number 123, May 97 cover, by Dan Jurgens and Ron Friends. This lasts until Superman Red, Superman Blue, number one, February 98, by Dan Jerk and Stuart Immonen, and printed with a 3D red and blue cover. When a trap set by Cyborg Superman and Toy Man splits Superman into two individual Supermen, one with primarily red costume and the other with a mostly blue costume. This was a throwback to an imaginary story in Superman 162, July 63, cover date, by Leo Dorfman and Kurt Swan that I believe is called Superman Red and Superman Blue. Uh, so. <laughs> following one, one marries Lois, one marries Lana. Right. They they have like they they have beef with each other. One is more sensitive, one is more tough, some crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> following a battle with the Millennium Giants, the two Supermen merge and Superman return to his normal powers and original costume because of reasons that are really never well explained, but people didn't ask a lot of questions. No, not you at know, that point. I have a same thing like I, I heard uh I told the interview today they were talking about uh Superman's red trucks, how they're gonna bring this back, how I just feel like you, know, you don't need to just put it. It just does. Just have them on. Don't just, even mention it. Just, just do it. Just be like, oh, I finally did my laundry. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So that that's the list we have, folks. I know 
there are many more that people could add to that. I know that mm-hmm. people could even ha- take issue with some of the ones we put on here. I'll be honest, for example, I liked Electric Soup's uh, look. I just didn't think I wanted Superman to look like that. Yeah, it's you know a cool what I mean? Look. It was a cool but look, though. Yeah. Uh, I just wish it wasn't him. I just kind of wanted Superman back. <laughs> and, and a couple of these others are like personal favorites, even though I admit that, you know, like the Asriel Batman. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Nightwing is what I like. So, you know, if you have any opinions that you want to add to it, or you want to tell us how wrong we were to put that on the list. Or hop to the other side and talk talk about some villains, because we only did heroes. That's true. We did specifically yep. stick with heroes, even though Punisher is always the most arguable one, but he is a hero. <laughs> uh, it always it always sticks with me, Chris. I can't just let it go. But uh, sure. It um yeah. If you want to talk about villains, you know whatever you, you want to you want to pick our brains. You want to talk about. Just want to say hi. You want to yeah. talk about Pamita? You write to us at weirdcomicshistory <laughs> at gmail you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, you can also find our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And Chris has a personal blog that he updates daily called Chris is on infiniteearths.com, and he does a different DC comic every day of the week, and you are still gunning for that uh, Action Comics Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you took a break today. You did a. Uh, I did. You did a different one. So I assume you have it metered out, right? You know what you have to do. I I don't know because uh, I'm I I'm not good with calendars. Uh, last year I did a 13 days of Christmas, mm. so I I need to get Whoops. better with the calendar. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, you gotta go check it out. He uh, does a different one. Great insight. Uh, breaks it down. A lot of images from the comic plus ads at the end. It's the next best thing to reading the comic, and in some cases. It's the better better choice, <laughs> uh, but we'll leave, we'll leave you to decide when that is. So that's Chris is on infiniteearth.com. We also have the show site at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where we've got some stuff popping and happening. There's that's a... right. It's lurched to life all of a sudden. Yes. It's like yeah, the old machine. Uh, <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. And we've got links to other uh, other places you can find us there as well if uh Whatever your uh, desired way of listening or yeah. now even viewing the... Uh, whoa. The, uh, well, we, whoa. We, have, we have two great things going on there right now that I think the listeners should know about. And that's you put up the sequential lists for yes. Cosmic Treadmill and Weird Comics History. So we know that the Podbean and, and pretty much all the other places that carry the podcast are, you know, are backlist just in crazy. order that it's we just, do it, it's yeah. whatever order that we upload it but if you go over to uh weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com there are ordered lists you can you know listen to it uh, in order or, or at least get to the show that you want to find with a little Easily, more easiness yeah. uh the other thing is we are also mirror posting every sunday there and uh if there's applicable stuff like last week we did read fleming and i i posted that movie by Jonathan mm-hmm. Demi that he did, you know, I, I, absolutely a direct one. And this week I have uh, uh, all the costumes we just talked about are up there. So uh, yeah, so we're gonna try to keep that a place to go and a, and a, a preferred place to go check Indeed. out our podcast is, is the hope. But uh, check it out anyway, even if you don't prefer it, <laughs> make, <laughs> make us feel good. <laughs> and uh, we definitely wanted to thank Aaron for this. Uh, Awesome suggestion because I we would we would have never picked this no. one on our own. This, this is the, uh, we love this kind a of lot thing of fun when it's uh, it's someone's first comic and they have a little story to it and you know we can kind of like 
I, I really do put my brain in that. Like, what if this was my first comic? And that's like, sure, that's something you'll never actually really know. But like, what? How would I come away from this? Like, because uh, there are some comics out there that if that was your first comic, you may have never <laughs> gone back again, too. folks. Like, what is this? What is this evil? Uh, but that's not the case with this one. This one was a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we had we had fun both. Even the Hawkeye story, I had fun with too. It was just like sure. a, little, a little paint by numbers, but it was uh, still good fun, still good stuff. So keep them coming, folks. You know we love your suggestions, and if you have a little, you know, cool little story to go with it, that only just helps to paint our world, or whatever. Absolutely. I don't, know, don't know what I'm trying to say there, Chris. I'm sorry. We uh, get it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Uh, we are on YouTube now. That's for right. whatever that's worth. <laughs> we are on YouTube. We're, that's that's as far as I look at it. That's sort of building. Uh, it is. Chris is doing a lot of work getting the old stuff up, and we're gonna have all the new episodes are gonna go up, and those lists can also be grouped sequentially yeah, and into playlists, playlists yeah. and stuff. So uh, that would be at the Weird Comics History uh, YouTube channel. So youtubecom slash weird. Uh, we- I, I, I think it's just a bunch of letters and numbers. <laughs> I, I think we have to have like like a several thousand uh, subscribers, which, you know, I, I'm sure we're still a couple of days away from that. Right, yeah. So, no, uh, we're, we're building. We're getting there. <laughs> that's before uh, you can get your own uh, designated uh, frankly, channel name. I, I, I think you'd agree, Chris, right now the best way to get to our YouTube channel is to go to our weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com yes. site. And kind of yes, it there. and go to the link. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, you know, that's the way we listen to a lot of our stuff during our while we're working on the computer. Sure. So, if that works for you folks, then we are happy to provide that. And like we said, the uh, older episodes will be getting up as we can get to them, but the newer ones will be coming up uh, as they automatically. Publish. Yeah. So, uh, if that's all we got from Chris, I think I'm going to tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill. Hey-o! Weird, wacky stuff. Feeling down and dirty, feeling kind of